Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, Thomas, as we open up another week of the VanCast, we do it on the heels of another victory against your favorite team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> but in fairness, a team that you predicted the Canucks would beat this week just because that's the way the stars align when these two teams face each other. First win since 2011, Canucks and Leafs. Well, everything the Canucks shot found the back of the net, right? I mean, <clears throat> there's um, one thing about, like, when, when I look at fortune or good fortune or talk about shooting luck, right? People seem to think that, you know, I'm talking about like uh, it hitting the post and going in or, or what have you. But sometimes it can be that, you know, the puck just bounces your way and ends up on your stick and it's a perfect shot and not one that the goalie even should have. It's not even a soft goal. Uh, that JT Miller puck bounces off a couple guys, you know, for the opening goal. And then the Tyler Myers goal off of, you know, Mitch Marner's uh, stick breaks, comes off his skate. Um, like those are two absolute sitters in the shot in the slot um, that you know Canucks forwards were able to to just torque past Campbell. You don't get a lot of chance. You don't get a lot of bounces like that over the course of a season. Canucks got two in one game. Um, you know, full credit to them. I thought they played pretty well. I didn't. I thought they at, at the very least you'd say they hung with the Leafs. I thought they took over parts of the first period. I hated the second period, and then the second, uh, the third period, they came out strong, and then managed to you know survive the siege that the Leafs put on late uh full credit to them full credit for Demko looked a little uncomfortable in that third period but still made some terrific saves uh just a gutty win a gutty win and one they absolutely needed especially because the very next day everyone they're chasing the standings goes out and wins and you know, you sort of begin to understand the margin you're looking at, right? I mean, the Canucks go three and one on this road trip and they needed to because if they hadn't, if they'd gone two and two, for example, which, you know, shouldn't be the end of your season, they would have fallen further out of the playoff race than they were at the outset of the trip, right? It's it's an inc- it, the margins right now for this team are incredibly slight. And that's uh, that raises the stakes for what we're about to see on this seven game homestand. Yeah, and, and you know what? I don't want to talk or I don't want to start the conversation by saying it was bounces, right? And because and I say that because do I think the Leafs outplayed the Canucks, you know, on form? Yeah, I do. Do I think it was as one-sided as the game we saw three weeks ago? No. Where for two not. periods, the Canucks were completely on their heels. I don't. And, and like you say, there were some moments where they were the better team in this game. And quite frankly, like, yeah, there were bounces, but the Leafs also got gifts, right? I mean, they got back into this game, the 3-2 goal, JT Miller giveaway, uh, 3-3 goal, Brock Besser. Are you kidding yeah, me? Like, what a, is that for the second that was a straight nice game? So, yeah, we want to look at it if you're in Toronto and say, oh, Austin Matthews, what a finish, clinical bullshit. That was a horrible play by Brock Besser, right? Yep. And and the fourth goal where they finally got the lead, on, it was an incredible let's shift. Let's not forget the first right? goal. They gave away a three-on-one 
on a on yeah, a yeah. What's Travis Hamanick? What's kill? Travis Hamanick yeah. doing on that play? Right. So yeah, the Canucks have been known to do these things. So we view it differently because it's called playing to who they are. But from a lead perspective, it was pure good fortune. Well, you know, right? I think the reason I'm focused a little bit on the uh, on the bounces is if you go back to February one, so a, a run of twelve games, and the Canucks are eight and four over the course of those twelve games. They're shooting 13% Farhan, right? So it's like this team was due to have their shooting percentage, which was one of the worst in the league for the first three months of the season, like both of the Travis Green months plus the first Boudreaux month. Every game this team played, it was 2-1, you know, and, and under Travis, they lost those and under Boudreaux, they won those. And, you know, it was really the goaltending show, like goalies were everything for the Canucks for months. And of late, all of a sudden, the opposition's goaltenders are saving 870 over a 12-game stretch. Everything the Canucks are shooting is finding the back of the net. Now, you know, there's a human element here, right? You don't do that for 12 games if you're not feeling yourself, right? If you're not feeling pretty good, if you're not feeling pretty confident. And I do think Boudreaux gets some credit for that. But I also think a lot of this is shooting percentage regression occurring. And what's funny is we're also seeing save percentage regression occur. The Canucks are 888 save percentage, which is uh, you know just outside the bottom 10 in the NHL over that 12-game stretch. So this has not been about goaltending of late. It's been about the Canucks converting chances at a dizzying rate. And that Toronto game, in fact, this whole road trip to me felt like an extension of that, right? It just, when the Canucks needed that big goal, they always got it. And, you know, the, the good thing, the good thing that I'm seeing, right, there, there's, there's one thing I'm really positive about here, and that's that, you know, this team had good percentages in the month of October, and they kept losing anyway, because they had too many no-show games, and because their special teams were a disaster, right? And then in November, when the percentages went against them, it really looked ugly, well, well, under Boudreaux, they've increased their baseline a little bit, five on five, and they're, they've, they've fixed the penalty kill a, a fair bit. And as a result, and by fixed, I mean, it's not a complete train wreck, right? It's not good. It's just not a complete train wreck. But that matters because now when the Canucks have wind at their back, when they're running downhill, when the percentages are in their favor, they're able to reel off eight and 10, right? The way that they have over the last 10 games. What I'm curious to see is over the last, you know, 25 games of the season, what happens? What does this team look like when their luck dries up, both in terms of their goaltending and in terms of their shooting percentage? Because it's inevitable. It happens to every team. You have a run of five games where you can't buy a goal. You have a run of five games where you can't buy a save. And the really good teams find ways to get seven points out of that stretch. Um, a, a five game stretch in which the Canucks only get six, seven points, uh, you know, is going to put them behind the eight ball, but it's not going to end their season. What does it look like when the, when their luck changes and, and look, it might not, it might not this season, <laughs> it really might not. But if it does, what does that look like? Cause that's going to be what may end up deciding, uh, this club's playoff fate ultimately. So that's sort of how I'm looking at this team right now, right? They, their their shooting luck is through the roof going through going back 12 games, going back to the start of February. Everything they're shooting is finding the back of the net. 
uh, which is which is which again is making up for where their luck was previously, right? Because it, it, it is, was yeah. unfairly it was unfairly bad before, and now they're seeing the right this end of this. Personally, going to happen. I think this is all Bruce Boudreau teaching them how to shoot. <laughs> that's really well. That's what this comes down you know, to. The, the discussion, the discussion to the Boudreau thing, right? So what? It's twenty-two, eight, and four now. That's like the end of all arguments. We have to talk about the twenty-eight and four. That is who this team is. And I think you have to give a ton of credit to Boudreaux and the players, right? They're, they are in form uh, to an extraordinary extent. They have clawed back to give themselves, you know, a puncher's chance anyway at getting back into the playoffs on this seven game homestand. But I mean, 28 and four would first of all imply that this is an elite team. And I don't think anyone, even the biggest fans of the playoff chase, would say that this is truly an elite team, that this team has become their record or that their record tells you a lot about who this team is now, right? As opposed to just how they've played over the last 30-ish games. Um, The other thing that I'd keep in mind, right, is teams with significant flaws do reel off extraordinary stretches. I mean, look no further than the team that's coming in here on Wednesday to play in Vancouver, right? The Montreal Canadiens for... Proof positive that a team that, you know, isn't built well or sustainably can do something pretty special, right? Um, do you know what the Canucks record was under the for, under John Tortorella in his first 35 games? It was really good. 20, 10, and 5, right? I mean, you can go back and read like Botch and Coos and like people writing like, the belief in this new coach has fundamentally changed. Well, they didn't use the word fundamentally because that's me. But... um has changed, you know, the belief in that locker room, right? I mean, teams go on runs like this, particularly when they've got the wind at their back, the way the Canucks have. Um, what's what's great, There's there, what's great about how well they've played under Boudreaux is that, first of all, I think they found a really good bench boss, right? Like, first of all, you found a really good coach. Um, he's going to have an option year at the end of the season, reportedly, but don't even worry about that. Just extend the guy, right? Just extend the guy. Um, this is clearly this is clearly working. There's something working here. Uh, secondly, secondly, he's given you this opportunity now. He's given management this opportunity to evaluate this roster, you know, in a far less dour and fatalistic and low pressure circumstance than the club was probably going to be in. Um, you know, was was overwhelmingly likely to be in on the day that they made sweeping organizational changes in early December, and that's useful as you evaluate what you want to do going forward, but make no mistake, like what this team needs to do going forward remains keeping their eye on the future. And this brings me to the the thing I'm most positive about as a result of this Canucks performance. I, I can tell you that I think management has their eyes wide open here. I think they have a very good sense of where this team is at. Um, You know, I think they, know that their focus has to be on big picture items like clearing cap space and making sure to monetize Tyler Mott and finding a way if you can to get off the Halak bonus and you know go go on down the list. Fans wouldn't care about that. And that's that's important, right? Because this really comes down to the big tickets in the room. Now fans would be disappointed if they lost Mott, but I don't think the belief amongst the fan base is that's going to fundamentally change you fundamentally see what you've done to me. Sorry. Uh, 
what what it's going to affect in you know <laughs> as far as the on ice product is concerned. Um, fans you know, love Ma- Tyler Mott. Do not underrate do. Tyler Mott's I, I, fan I, favorite I, status. Look, I, I think he's. How dare you? I think I think he's great, right? But if they can get something meaningful for Tyler Mott, and and that meaningful doesn't mean a player back in return, right? No, it's, it, it'll it could be mean a pick. just. Yeah, so if you can do that, I don't think people will jump off. the The issue is coming down to it, you know JT Miller, Brock Besser, and Connor Garland. If if John, if Halak left, people would be doing cartwheels. Even people who want this team to make every totally. push for the playoffs. The issue for me is just don't do anything stupid like trying to buy. Well, no, but they're not going make to make sure you, I know and make sure you get absolute full value if JT Miller gets traded. Well, and so I don't think JT Miller is going to get traded at this juncture. I'm not, either. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's going to take a real godfather offer, right? The the type you can't refuse um, with. And even that, even that, I, I wonder how much the Canucks will could be tested on that front, too, if they keep winning, right? If they keep winning, I think at some level that not that I don't think this team's going to win enough that there's any chance that they sell. And I don't know that the team's going to win enough that there's any chance that like all of a sudden the Rangers get desperate and say Lafreniere for Miller. They'd be like, yes, thank you. (laughs) I mean, I still think that that I still think if a piece like that's on offer that that it will significantly shape their logic. But I'm not worried that they're going to go on a run of four wins or, you know, in a row and all of a sudden you know, the whole script is flipped and we owe it to the room and do things for, for the wrong reasons. Like that to me is the best reason for optimism. The fact that I think incoming hockey operations leadership has a really stable grasp of what this team is, what, what they've accomplished so far, what they can do and how much they need uh, in terms of, you know, additional talent and, and additional talent coming to ultimately get this city to where it wants to be in terms of rooting for a contending team. But, uh, but okay, so here, here's the thing. L- let's, let's play the extension of that, right? Okay. Would they make a trade today that allows them to move Tyler Myers if it means adding a meaningful piece, like say Connor Garland, right? Like it's that type of deal that, drastically alters the makeup of the room. Like, and again, we, we know Tyler Myers are going to want to move, you know, I think in a vacuum, even with the run that they're on, knowing the flaws in his game, I think if there was a way to, to move him and not wreck everything else, um, would they, would they do it? Right. Because like the, the other moves are the obvious ones, sorry, right? Sorry. Like Tyler Myers. Tyler Myers, right? Because we understand well, that they want to get off. At some point this offseason, I think they'll look strongly at moving a deal like that. Or, I'm sorry, a player like that, right? That, you know, he's he's he plays a lot of minutes, but they understand that in terms of actual value that he brings and impact, on-ice impact, he's, he's borderline replacement level. So, so would you make a move? Would you make a move like that where you could if all of a sudden someone says, you know, we value Tyler Myers, he's a big guy and what do you, you know, whatever, like pick a team and they want to bring in Tyler Myers, but they know the contract is big and you're going to have to offer a sweetener to get off that deal. Do they do that? Do they offer a sweetener to get off Tyler Myers contract? No, correct. No, yeah. but but I, but that's but that's because you don't need to. Like you don't need Tell to. Tell me why. Because his contract becomes one million after he paid a signing bonus in two years. So you play him through next year again, and then he has real value. It's more an asset management question than anything else. It's like if you're not going to win the cup this year or next, 
there's no urgency to get off of Tyler Myers's money. Just wait until it's most favorable. Trust that this like hardworking, super professional guy who's got some skills that are likely to age pretty well, namely being massive, right? And seeing the game yeah. pretty well, aren't going to cause him to drop, you know, fall off a cliff at 32 or whatever. And wait until the time is right to sell him when you, when you don't have to include a sweetener. Like this organization can't be paying sweeteners to get off of contracts at this point, unless, you know, I mean, honestly, unless it's something that frees up like 50 million worth of cap liability. And who could I be talking about there? Right. I mean, Myers, it's not, there's no, you're not winning yeah, this not year. You're not winning next, next year. year. It's, it's, it's not about for me, for me, that's just not the type of deal you do a sweetener, you know, what, what, the the if you're the way a Myers move would make sense to me, for example, if it came prior to when his contract dips down, would be if you traded him this summer, for example, for a one year expensive deal from a team that wants to move that guy, like uh like Patrick Hornquist in Florida, to use as an example, right? He's got one year at four or five. Myers has two years at six. Um, do you make that deal? Just to just to save you uh, uh, the six million down the line, even though that six million becomes very movable. Uh, that you know sure. that that makes sense to me. But a deadline deal for Myers in which you pay a sweetener that does that just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think it may it would make sense to this team. I think they're going to accumulate. I think they're going to do moves that they can make if the offers are right. And you know I think they want to do more than just Mott and Halak. I think they want to move out more salary than that. They want to gain more futures than that. And I think they want to do that despite the run the team's been on. And to me, that's just so refreshing. Like, I, I'm I'm not worried about this team making knee-jerk reactions to a run of short-term results. And I don't know that I've felt that way about this club since I came back to cover them. Yeah, certainly uh, the the narrative around uh, what the the capabilities and intent of the people in charge are is a little bit different than what it was a couple of months ago. Uh, we're talking a bit more about what to expect um, in the coming weeks as far as the trade deadline is concerned. We still aren't completely done with Toronto. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I, and I, I think what you're getting at, Drancer, is, you know, they, they want to make moves beyond just those two players, which is fine. But I think that from a fan perspective, they want to have their cake and eat it too, where both things can come true here. And that means don't move Miller, don't move Besser, don't move Garland, don't move Pearson, find a way to move Hamannick, find a way to move um, Poolman, find a way to move uh, Jason Dickinson, right? These guys that haven't brought any meaningful level of value to this team this season. Uh, we know what the contracts look like and how much they could potentially hurt. And they're not going to fundamentally alter fun it's twice in one show. I need my own bingo card. Um, you know, they're going to not impact this team's ability to stay on their run that they're currently on. That if that person gets moved, that's not going to be what you can point at and say, this is what fell apart. Okay. So, what do you what are you thinking then will fall apart? 
their opportunity to stay relevant until April and make a push to the playoffs. Right. So, like, I look, I get that we understand big picture, but from a fan perspective, is there a way to do both? And and the names I talked about would allow most people to think they could do both. I think everybody understands as much as Tyler Mott is a fan favorite. Okay. And he does all those little things. And he's a great fourth line player, a great finishing piece on a good team. That's an actual contender. Right. He could bring so much value to that type of team. Um, and you shouldn't overpay. Like you look at Tyler Mott and think, well, crap they're paying jason dickinson like why why, i'd rather you pay tyler mott you're paying you know whatever hamannick or pullman i know they're defensemen but i'd rather put that salary into tyler mott but in reality everybody knows you shouldn't be paying a fourth line player over two million dollars no although just shouldn't happen although tyler mott is like glued to the ice when the canucks are holding leads in the third period I know he is. Like he played, I know he, he is. played half of the last five minutes in Toronto. He played half of the last seven minutes in um, Nassau County in Elmont. Um, you know, when this Canucks team, when this Canucks team is leading, Mott is their first line player. I don't think even the most ardent playoff run supporter yep. would would be really upset at the thought of trading Tyler Mott for a second or a third round pick. Um yeah, fair a, enough. Let's say a third, like a second. Generally, you want somebody with a bit more offensive upside. But what's the what's the maximum? What's the ceiling for what Tyler Mott can fetch in a trade? I think it really depends. I mean, I think if you get a second, that would be a tidy bit of business to pull out my old favorite. Um, I think so. But so that's a, know, that's the ceiling. You never know what problems you can help a team solve, right? I mean, there's all sorts of ways to maximize a deal, right? Could you bundle Mott with? one of the depth defenders that Vancouver has at a very low cap hit that would be attractive. I mean, I don't know what Kyle Burroughs' injury situation is, but Mott and Shen, for example, right? And you take back a million dollars from the team you're dealing with or 850K or whatever you need to do to make the math work, or you retain half on one of them. All of a sudden, it's like for 1.5 million, you're adding a perfect depth defender, which you're going to do anyway. And... Um, you know, a really fast forward for your bottom six and PK, like that's the sort of deal that you know. If you bundle guys, can you get more? I mean, I, I don't, I like, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, so I don't want to, I don't want to go on the record projecting Mott's trade value. I would say, but uh, but ultimately, you're saying that there could be meaningful value coming back, whether it's a high draft pick or whether it's part of a package that could bring them value do, down yeah. the road. And I think there's right? ways like to a, maximize this value, and I'm curious to see how the Canucks approach it and how rival teams approach it. But I wonder. I wonder very much about a Mott package uh, to to accentuate his value. I think that would be a good approach to making sure the deadline's a big one for this team, even if they don't do a high volume of of big ticket items, sell big ticket yeah, so, items. Yeah, so, so, but again, bottom line, to circle back, I just don't believe that's going to offend the portion of the fan base that believes this team should owe it to the room and and go, you know, stay on this run and sure. do everything they can. Uh, you, do you know what I mean? Like, ultimately, there are some elephant in the room type of contracts here or players here. And those are the ones they don't want to see moved. And I think those are the ones that won't get moved just because of the complicating factors around all of this. I mean, you know, they've even said there's been minimal discussion with Ben Hankinson about Brock Bester's situation at this oh, have point. Have they said that? We reported it on Friday. Yeah, sorry. Let me yeah. take that back. You guys, have, you've, you've reported it, that there's been minimal discussion around that, which is an indicator of where where that player is going. And that is nowhere currently. Yeah. It's a complicated deal. So he's not getting moved. JT Miller, you said it yourself, the godfather deal. 
they're going to need to hit a home run. It's going to have to be Tyler Toffoli times two. Oh, times three. Right. And and they know, but they know that. And that's the point. So if all of a sudden you were able to get a Tyler Toffoli times three deal, which I think we both believe they're not going to at this stage, they're not actively pursuing it. If someone wants to throw one at them, they'll look at it, but they're not going out to teams saying, give us this pick, this player and take this cap space off our hands or free, you know, whatever. However, they're not going out and seeking those deals. If someone brings one to them, they're going to listen. You and I both believe that deal is not happening for this trade deadline. I I would say I am more mirroring what I'm hearing from teams around the league. Like rival teams are increasingly skeptical that the Canucks are going to move JT Miller. So in terms of the three players that I mentioned, what are the odds that you think either of them get moved? And, and within the context of understanding that this management team knows that they have some goals and part of attaining those goals can happen at this deadline. I don't want to handicap which I think gets moved, but I, I would be... Can any, just any. I would be mildly surprised, I think, if the Canucks don't move off of one additional contract beyond... Mott and Halak. And, and look, it's going to be hard to even move Halak. So we'll see what they can get done. But those three players. Yeah. But of those three players, I, I, I would expect, I, 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 I mean, it's so hard to gauge ahead of the deadline, but I think the Canucks will at least try to, to make a move that sheds more salary than, than the Halak Mott thing. And, and if that includes one of those guys, I wouldn't be stunned. Okay. I know. I know. So, I squirreled that a little bit, but it's like you did. You did squirrel I do, it because, I do like think, I said, the point. I, I mean, they want to move the, more money. They want to move out more money than that. Um, so I could see one of those guys potentially moving. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be JT though. Well, the only guy, the only guy that's going to get that's going to free up money is potentially Connor Garland, then, right? Because the Besser deal is really complicated at this point, and there hasn't been much dialogue around it. Yeah, and I've seen Garland kind of get moved up the trade boards from some of the insiders as well, relative to Besser and and uh, you know I think everybody believes Mott is the most likely to get moved. Yeah. That's the least complicated move out yeah. there. Right. And everybody knows he's on an expiring contract. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I I think that's the thing. And we understand that this management team is open to moving all of them. And we understand that this management team won't allow this season to get in the way of the bigger picture. Yep. And also, so for me, I just think that you're going to see a scenario where a percentage of the fan base is is placated. Like, I think everybody's going to be happy. Is my point. I think everybody's going to be happy uh, in that the big pieces stay and a, a piece of, sh- of salary gets shed. I don't know, man. I think right? if I think if uh, there's going to there's going to be a lot to discuss no matter how they approach this. Like if there's a deal involving Garland or Besser, like there's going to be fans that think that's the wrong call. And, you know, I want to talk. I want to talk really quickly a little bit. I, will, I want to get back to Toronto. Um, Let's because do it. Because. You know who had a really bad game, I thought? John Tavares. On <laughs> I know we talked about this in er- on an earlier show. Yeah. he. Uh, I thought he was basically a non-entity five-on-five. And, you know, when the Leafs did the Tavares deal and then traded for Muzzin, right? They were going in the last year of Matthews and Marner's ELCs, and they geared up for that run in 2019, right? Where they lost to the Bruins in seven in part because they had really bad goaltending in game seven and they made some really dumb errors at home in game six. Um, but 
if you look at that series on form, like that track meet Leafs team was the better team in five of the seven games. And it's just they got they got beaten by a Bruins team that made it to the cup final and just knows how to win and obviously had their number. Um, so that's one thing. You know, if you make win now moves for a team that did have and I know people are going to scoff at this, but it's like that was a realistic that Leafs team had a realistic cup shot. They were absolutely loaded and they pushed a team that made it to game seven of the Stanley Cup final to a seven game series. And in fact, we're by far the better team in that series and just, you know, the cookie crumbled against them in the playoffs. It happens. So that that's that's the thing. Now, now you look at the Leafs and it's like Jake Muzzin, we have no idea where he's going to play for this Leafs team when he's healthy. We even we don't even know if he'll be healthy at any point in this playoffs. Um, and you've got Tavares, who takes up $11 million and is probably not an $11 million contributor anymore. And all of a sudden, this l- second sort of wave of the Leafs window includes navigating around these guys in their you know late 30s or not late 30s, but mid, you know early 30s who are diminishing in terms of their skill set and contributions and are attached to big tickets, right? So that's sort of the story of t- the Tavares problem that the Maple Leafs have to navigate as they become, you know, I honestly was watching them the other on Saturday thinking like, is this kind of like the West Coast Express team? Like that, you know, their defense isn't very fast right now. I like their third line, but I don't like their second. Um, you know, their goaltending, I'm a little bit like, oh boy. Um, you know, they feel to me like uh, like the West Coast Express era Canucks, where they've got this one dominant line, but mm-hmm. you know, no one really expects them to get it done because of their goaltending and the other pieces on the roster. And that's gonna be really tough to reassemble. Like it's going to be tough to reassemble this Leafs team, even though they're still one of the league's best and they're gonna get over 110 points, into being you know, the way they were in 2019, where it was like, oh boy, like that team, that team can do real damage. Like that's going to be tough. And you're going to be navigating around some 30 year olds whose, you know, values diminishing while they're still attached to massive contractual commitments. Now the Canucks, if you do a JT Miller deal, right. And I mean, a contract extension, his current deal, he's going to be 30 when it expires. If you're doing that deal, you better have a window like the Leafs did when they did Tavares so that you mine value out of the first few years of that contract, right? Because three years down the line, like by 2025, you know, the JT Miller we're seeing now is probably not going to be the JT Miller you're paying. That's how hockey works. Like guys at 32, 33, even if they're really smart, sharp players who have skills that age well and Muzzin and Tavares are, are as smart as it come, right? They, they, they played old man hockey when they were 22, right? Um, it's still cruel. Like age still, time still comes for us all. And I think you have to be really like, I was watching Tavares struggle just thinking that to me is the proof of concept for why you need to be very, very careful about how you navigate things with, JT Miller, particularly because in years one and two of JT Miller's next contract, like this team's probably not going to be ready to contend anyway. So you're not even getting the finishing value from his deal before he's 32, 33. And at that point, I think you have to be really nervous about what he's going to look like. Uh, this is why the Miller discussion is a fascinating one to me. It's so high stakes for this organization to manage. And it was just something I was thinking as I watched, um, you know, Tavares really struggle. Um, you know, he was he was eaten up time and time again by like Myers and OEL, um, you know, on Saturday night. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, I talked about about that contract and how JT Miller would fit. And you yeah, you said, yeah, look at look at Tavares now. Right. And can, can the Canucks do enough this offseason in terms of rebuilding the blue line? to give themselves a legitimate opportunity, opportunity next year to do more than just squeak into the playoffs. No, that's, like the, the, answer, that's the issue, the, right? The, the, it's a flat. No, right? Like, yeah. The, and, and I think again, that they know it, you know, I, I've got a piece up at the athletic today about uh high end young defenseman, something we know the Canucks are now targeting. Uh, it's called Braden Schneider, Bowen Byram and eight more blue chip young defenders. The Canucks could target at the deadline. And for the Canucks, this is like a 12 to 18 month effort. This isn't something they expect or can count on getting done before March 21st. And I think that's telling, right? Like this is not going to be a short turnaround to build a durable contending team. Like there's not, there's not enough cap flexibility to bring this group to training camp and have a full Bruce Boudreaux training camp and come out of the gates firing next season uh, with a contending quality roster. You know, I, I mean, you definitely want to build a team that's capable of making the playoffs next year, I think, especially with the age that some of their best young players are at. But, you know, I, I, I don't think you have the flexibility without trading some really good pieces to do enough this summer to set things right. Um, you know, and, 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 and obviously, I don't believe that this team, I don't believe this team's record under Bruce Boudreaux reflects like their new level. I don't think this is suddenly an elite team. Or a well-constructed roster, right? I, I think this team is, you know, ha- in great form. Kudos to them. But is, you know, something like the 16th to 19th best team in hockey on true talent? Um, your mileage may vary. And and so to get up to the top five, like, that's a multi-year project. That's not going to happen next year, man. 16 to 19, that's higher than I would have expected you to say. Well, no, I'm, is it? Yeah, I, well, you, I've heard you talk before about them being past the past the twenty mark. Okay. But, um, well, I guess I'm adjusting a little bit as they as they uh, as they go on this run. Um, yeah, okay. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah. I feel bad now. I feel like I've contradicted myself. <laughs> um, I'm but seeing, you know, like, I'm honestly, seeing I, enough. I'm seeing uh, enough from this team that I'm willing to say. You know, they're closer to the fringe playoff team perhaps than I expected them to be going into this season. Uh, I still think they're. I, I still don't think a ton of the roster uh, as it's composed. But I mean, I they, they've got Hughes is like their only top four defenseman I really like. It's like Hughes, Shen, OEL, Myers in their top four. It's like I can't get over that. No, you're right. I, like I, I, I just don't think y- you make the playoffs that way. You don't. You've you've got to find you've got to find ways to improve that group. I mean, Shen is is great because that's who they've got playing with Hughes right now. But ultimately, should be a bottom pair guy or even a seventh on a good team, as we've seen his his uh, space with the Tampa Bay Lightning and anybody acquiring him isn't going to all of a sudden look to give him the minutes he's getting in Vancouver, right? Like you're you're just good, you're going to see that if he in fact does get moved as to how the rest of the league views him, right? Um, and, you know, and good for him for having a, a bit of a renaissance this season, right? Uh, at this stage of his career. But at the end of the day, on a good team, he's seen differently. And and Myers is a guy playing heavy minutes that's a replacement level player. And OEL is, has been up and down, right? There's been moments at the beginning of the year where we thought, okay, they're going to get really good value for him for a couple of years. There is a bounce back effect. But, you know, we've seen... Uh, we've seen both sides of that as the as the course of the season has progressed, but you know I I will say in that game on form I, I thought 
they were so much better than they were three weeks ago. Um, you know, the first period, I thought they were the better team. In the second period, it got away from them a little bit when they started turning the puck over. And then that one shift leading to the 4-3 oh. goal looked like it's so easy to look at that shift and that that two-minute sequence and think that's been the whole game because we're so re- reminded of what happened three weeks ago when for two periods, that's what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, right? the, the second But it wasn't period, like yeah. that. No, it wasn't. I, like, I, don't even well. think the whole, I don't even think the whole second period was like that, Drencher. Just Just the last 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes, the Canucks kind of lost the plot defensively with some bad giveaways and the Leafs started buzzing. But I thought and I thought but I thought the first the second half of the first period, the Canucks kind of did the same. The Canucks were all over them. So and, and the then, third period until the last five minutes, like the third period was not complete ice tilted and you knew score effects would take over at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the siege the Leafs put on late was impressive, but the response the Canucks put on early was impressive. So, you know, no, look, the Canucks played and as well. Far as that, and as far I as Thatcher Demko, yeah. Demko made some five alarm saves. He did. But at the same time, um, you know, he, he still gave up four goals. This wasn't the performance he gave three weeks ago. Sorry, let me, I want to, I want to, one thing, one thing that I think did happen, though, is that the Canucks, the Canucks took their chances and the Leafs didn't. And that, to me, was the difference in the game. And and by the way, Demko versus Campbell was a big part of that for me. Um. The Leafs had, you know, Nylander breakaway, uh, odd man rush, odd man rush, odd man rush. The Canucks, the the Canucks forechecked hard, and it got to the Leafs a little bit early in the uh, late in the first period, and then in the second, and and I think early in the third too. The Leafs kept breaking it. They just kept breaking Vancouver's forecheck, and honestly, it was like uh, Matt Stafford dealing with the Blitz, right? Like and they just kept hitting against the Blitz, and they didn't they didn't convert those chances. But but they were springing constant three on ones. Like there was at least three or four, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they scored on two. The Tavares one on the power play. Um, but you know they 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 really didn't do the sort of damage you'd have expected with how they uh, sprung themselves off against the Canucks. I felt like that was you know pretty consistent with what we saw against the Rangers and the Devils. With the Devils being the only team that took advantage of it. The Islanders were too slow, but they took their chances too. And this sort of comes back to the one thing that I'm really nervous about going into this homestand, which is the way Vancouver's defensive game is trailing. Um, Again, go back to February 1st, and the Canucks have 45% uh, control of all five-on-five scoring chances, right? They're they're 47% expected goals um, over the last 12 games, dating back to February 1st. That, to me, is where you get into trouble. That to me is where this team could get into trouble, especially if they stop uh, converting at thirteen percent, right? <laughs> or, or if their goaltending um, isn't elite. And we'll see if that plays out. We'll see if that plays out on this homestand. But I do think the atrophy of this club's like I liked three of the four games that we saw on this road trip um, a lot, like a lot. I loved the battle level in the Islanders game. I thought they beat the Rangers. I don't think they just won that game. Um, and then I thought they were certainly not outclassed by any means and just fortunate against the Leafs. They played really well. And yet I look through those three games and see a lot of really good chances against uh, that the other teams just didn't. Well, the Islanders did. The Islanders were opportunistic, but certainly the Rangers and the Leafs um, just weren't capitalizing on the way the Canucks, the, the Canucks were. And that to me isn't a sustainable look in terms of how those games unfolded. Let's take a quick break and come back and get into these seven games at home, which ultimately is going to make or break this team season. So, Drancer, we start with Montreal on Wednesday, a team that um, 
wound up beating the Oilers and did the Canucks a bit of a favor, but you know, they've, they've been better. They're experiencing their bump under Marty St. Louis. How dangerous is this Habs team on Wednesday? Because when you look at what's coming with Washington and Tampa, and I don't think a Canuck team, you know, being an all Canadian and the history behind the Habs and all of that stuff, I don't know that they take the Habs for granted just because of what the building's going to sound like. It'll wake them up. But, um, it is by definition in any other market a bit of a trap game. Yeah, I'm so the Montreal Canadiens. It's an interesting. It's an interesting team right now. You know, they go from being one of the worst teams in the league under Martin St. Louis. They are actually out shooting teams five on five all of a sudden, which they certainly were not doing under Ducharme. Um, their expected goals rates fifty one percent through his first eleven games. That's wild. That's wild considering that they were at. Uh, 44% <laughs> previously. Marty St. Louis bump is looking very large here, Farhan. Very large indeed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they offer a threat. I They, they certainly are not the Montreal Canadiens team that this Canucks club encountered earlier in the season. Now, they've had the wind at their backs too, right, to accumulate the record that they have. Uh, they're shooting 9% five-on-five. 929 save percentage five on five. And that's with guys like Sam Montembeau, who I know from Florida, um, you know, and, and I've seen play a lot, but yeah, seven, seven wins in 11 games and they're playing legitimately good hockey. Um, so yeah, this is not, this is not your late November Montreal Canadians. This is a very different team indeed. And definitely a dangerous game. This is not, it, it's an interesting, schedule like if we just preview this week and we're gonna do win or lose do it that guy who's like trance would never schedule a a live van cast after a canucks win right like these are pre-scheduled man (laughs) Um, but we will do a live van cast after the game on wednesday right yeah, that's going to be like, look, if they lose, that will be the game that will be the lost opportunity on the homestand. I but, mean, Detroit, but, but it won't. Detroit notwithstanding. It won't like secretly, secretly, the Wednesday game against the Montreal Canadiens is really tough. That's a really tough game. Canucks will be rested, but so will Montreal, right? They're not playing the day before. And, you know, the yeah, I mean, they haven't played. They're already in Vancouver. They haven't played since Saturday. So both teams are going to be equally rested. And that's going to be a tough game, especially with the way that the Habs are legitimately playing way better hockey under Martin St. Louis, like a bigger bounce in St. Louis first 11 than the Canucks got based on the underlying form anyway, under Boudreaux. And they got a real bounce under Boudreaux. So that's significant, right? Then, then you've got the Capitals coming in on the Friday and the Capitals are always a tough team, especially because they're very large and they can move the puck effectively. And they're similarly coming in rested. They won't have played since Wednesday. So no rest advantage for the Canucks against the Capitals. It's actually the lightning game. It's the lightning game on Sunday. That is the soft game, like the game that you absolutely have to win this homestand or at least this week. And that's really odd to say because they're back-to-back Stanley Cup champions, right? But they played Chicago yesterday, Farhan. They play the Jets on Tuesday. Then they go Thursday against the Flames. Then they go Saturday against the Oilers, Sunday against the Canucks. So they, by the time they play the Canucks, they will be playing their fifth game this week, right? Fifth game in seven days. Um, and their Canucks sixth, should have scheduled it for one o'clock. And, yeah, and they're sixth and eight. So... 
I mean, that is a really tough stretch. That's a really tough stretch for this Lightning team. Um, that's going to be a tired, battered team. Now, they have championship DNA, but I would say if you are hoping to just like buy tickets and go see a Canucks win, right? If you're hoping to, uh, the Habs game is tough. The Habs get, Hab, I would rate the Habs game as a tougher game for this Canucks team than the Lightning game on the Sunday. And I know that's preposterous to hear, but when you factor in the rest circumstance and the St. Louis bounce, I think it's true. Yeah, it makes it makes sense when you lay out the schedule that way. They may get the backup goaltender as well. Like all of that could play into the Canucks' oh, hands. They'll hundred percent get the backup goaltender. Vasilevsky is going to play McDavid. Like, don't make any mistakes. Yeah, no question. That. So, yep. you're and the be game won't mean on, nearly enough to them to play him in back to back games. So, yeah, you're going to be shooting on Brian Elliott. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, the, to me, that Lightning game on Sunday, like that's the one you got to have. That's the one you got to have. So that sort of ups the stakes too, because if you can win, beat Montreal. You almost have a freebie against the Caps, right? If you win, great. If you don't, you know, so be it. And then, and then you got to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning on Sunday. Like that's the that's the week to me. And and obviously, if it starts off with a loss against the Habs, compounds against the Caps, and then you can't beat a tired Lightning team. Like I mean, you know, we all know what that'd mean anyway. That's the end of your season. This team, as Bruce Boudreaux said, every loss is two or three. Right? This team can't afford a hiccup of that magnitude. So going to be fascinating to watch but this road trip the Canucks have to their credit right they've given given themselves a chance to make this interesting like they have 14% playoff odds going into Monday according to Dom decision oh is it is it up to four uh, up to four to 14 yeah nice. which is down actually I did not see those down actually a percentage point from um, yesterday because the out-of-town scoreboard was very cruel indeed to the Vancouver Canucks on Sunday um, you know you've got the Kings in action tonight Against the Bruins, you've got Oilers Flames. You don't want a three-point game there. And then you've also got the Golden Knights in action against a Flyers team on Tuesday. Um, you know, Jets Lightning, the Wild. You're not catching the Wild, but they play the Rangers. And then Flames and the Ducks play. And the Ducks play a pretty soft opponent. And if the Ducks win that game, if the Ducks beat the Chicago Blackhawks, they retake you know, the point percentage lead over Vancouver. So, you know, by the time this team plays, like most of the teams they're chasing could be even further ahead, depending on how things break, um, which again, just underscores how hard it is to catch up, right? Like it's just so hard to catch up in this league, Farhan. And I think this road trip really crystallized that, right? You go three and one and you come back having gained only one point. You return to Vancouver having gained only one point uh, over the second wild card spot, despite taking six of eight points. Like that's, it's brutal. I, I still, every time I look at the standings, it, I'm still struggling to see Vegas where I'm seeing them. Yeah, I mean, they haven't played very well of late. They're no, super they banged up. Pacioretty, did Pacioretty return yesterday? I think he did. Yeah. I watched parts of that game, but I, I wasn't paying close enough attention because I was on mute while I checked college basketball scores. Um, oh, God. I was going to ask you how your weekend went. Yeah, not very well. Duke. Nor Duke, did Coach K's. Yeah. Duke and Wisconsin losing. Like, come on. Or I don't actually know if Wisconsin lost, but they definitely didn't cover. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, those those are tough beats, but um, but yeah, the fact is is that the Golden Knights are going to put it together, but they really have not played well. Like their underlying profile looks very similar to Vancouver's since February first, um, and we know what I think of Vancouver's underlying profile since February first. So imagine what I'm I'm thinking about with the Kings or the Golden Knights. I still believe that they're going to figure it out. 
I still think there's too much talent there, but yeah, they need to they need to start playing much better hockey than they have of late. Well, two more days for you to take abuse from the VIPs about where this team actually is and how you just got the whole thing wrong with Bruce Boudreaux and you're not giving enough credit for him uh, for where they I are. I called for him to be extended. At 28 and four. Well, you did. You did. The guy you just did. wins. It's incredible. Honestly, you know, it's incredible. I think, but I think what I think what the VIPs want is an admission from both of us that Travis Green was horrible and was the problem. Well, I mean, Travis Green was clearly part of part of a wider organizational issue. I mean, that's clear, right? Uh, Boudreaux's had a massive impact, but I mean, I suspect that you know Green's going to get another shot elsewhere, and I suspect once he does, the idea that he you know is solely responsible for what occurred here, um, you know, is that's takes that's going to age badly. I mean, I just I genuinely believe that. So um, yeah, I mean. But that doesn't take away from what Boudreaux's done. Like B- B- Boudreaux's had an incredible run. I don't see why it needs to be the 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 people pointing to Green being the issue and actually the roster is well constructed. Those are people just interested in relitigating the Benning era, right? They're like, I was right about Benning, and look what Boudreaux's done. And it's like, guys, there's nothing that can happen on the ice that's going to change the fact that the Benning tenure in Vancouver was cataclysmic for this organization. Like there's nothing that can happen over the balance of this season that will change that short of winning a cup. Like that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, come on. Yeah, no, I agree. Get over it. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. Because even, even that most ardent supporter that's looking at 28 and three, if you honestly look at that blue line and think that is a successfully built blue line, you need to give your head a real, well, real shake. And and not not only not not even mentioning that this is an all-in season. This is an all-in season with cap ramifications date going beyond this year to build a team that as we sit Mar- March 7th, having gone on this heater for 34 games or whatever it is, um, you know, still has 14% odds of making the playoffs, right? Like this is so that's still that's that part is still not good enough, even if you're beginning, as I clearly am, to watch this team and wonder uh, if, in fact, they're better than you thought. No doubt. But either way, they're fun to watch and it's a fun conversation to have. I, I know that many would prefer they just kind of trudge to the finish line and look for that number one pick. But uh, when they go three and four and win again in Toronto, it's always a fun time. With that, we are out of here. we got a busy week coming up. Uh, we will be back Wednesday post game, as we mentioned, after the Habs and Canucks go at it. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, our last live room was such a, a raving success oh, that yeah. uh, we're looking forward to what this one's going to bring. And, and so we'll do it. Uh, we'll do it from the rink. Um, on Wednesday and just to prep the VIPs. So what we're going to do is we're going to go do media and then uh, I, assuming you're there, Farhan. Yep. And then yep. Uh, we're going to go do media, do our media obligations, and then we will set up a live room. We'll tweet it out. We hope you join us in, in the same numbers. And remember, you can participate. You can have the floor. And if you didn't join us last time, it's a really cool format, like a really fun time. And we'd love to have you. So Wednesday post game after media availability, we'll be doing effectively an hour long interactive live vancast and we can't wait to hear your thoughts on the first game of a crucial canucks wrote uh, homestand on wednesday 
And between now and then, if you're interested, please tune into our other podcast options, including Eric Tulski, who is the assistant GM of the Carolina Hurricanes. He joins Sean and Craig this week on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. Meanwhile, John Vogel talks Buffalo Sabres with Rob Pizzo, Sarah Sivian, and Jesse Granger on the Athletic Hockey Show Roundtable. Meanwhile, former Minnesota Wild Captain Miko Koivu is Mike Russo's guest on Straight from the Source later on this week. And as for us, thanks for listening to the VanCast, whether it's live or you know, uh, on the uh, recorded, on the downloaded version, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. And again, our VanCast live room returns Wednesday post game following the Canucks and Canadians.